and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. According to The Guardian, chickens were first tempted down from trees by rice. Mm. All right. (laughs) We're just going to jump right into it. Yeah. Apparently, close human contact only started about 3,500 years ago. Previously, we thought chickens were bred for the table up to 10,000 years ago. And part of the reason we're looking at this is because, do you know where chickens are native to, by any chance? Kentucky? (laughs) (laughs) Excellent answer. However, the truth is that they're native to the tropical jungles of Southeast Asia. Right? (laughs) And then, after arriving in the Mediterranean region, it took almost a thousand more years for chickens to become established in colder climates like Scotland, Ireland, Scandinavia, and Iceland. Hmm. The experts reevaluated chicken remains found in over 600 sites in 89 countries, and they found that the oldest bones of a definite domestic chicken were at the Neolithic Ban Non Wat in central Thailand, dating to between 1650 BC and 1250 BC. That's fairly recent when we're mm. talking about antiquity, right? Yeah. yeah. So researchers say that humans first came into contact with the jungle birds, which were you know living high up in the trees, during dry rice farming. So the ancient ancestors of domestic chickens started coming down because they were like, hey, rice. <laughs> and then once they'd been domesticated, they were transported first across Asia and then throughout the Mediterranean along routes used by early Greek, Etruscan, and Phoenician maritime traders. So why does this matter? Well, Professor Gregor Larson from the University of Oxford said, this comprehensive reevaluation of chickens firstly demonstrates how wrong our understanding of time and place of chicken domestication was. And even more excitingly, we show how the arrival of dry rice agriculture acted as a catalyst for both the chicken domestication process and its global dispersal. And previous research that we had showed that we did not initially domesticate chickens for food, but as exotica. And that's the word they chose. Hmm. (laughs) Early studies found that chickens appeared to be respected in the Iron Age society, for example, and were often buried whole and unbutchered with their hens or sometimes even with their human owners. Hmm. It wasn't until the Roman Empire that chickens and their eggs began to be popularized as food. Professor Naomi Sykes from the University of Exeter said, eating chickens is so common now that people think we have never not eaten them. But our evidence shows that our past relationship with chickens was far more complex and that for centuries, chickens were celebrated and venerated. Yeah, I mean, if you're buried with a chicken, that sort of says to me, like, it's a beloved pet, right? Right? It's Mm -hmm. not the same as dinner. Exactly. Yeah, that just the burial and even being buried whole indicates a respect for the animal that clearly we have gotten out of touch with. There are people who still have pet chickens. It just is a temporary Oh, for pet. sure. And then... <laughs> <laughs> we call it future food. That's its nickname. <laughs> just kidding. All right, next link. Next, next link. link. 
This article comes to us from Wired.com, and it's titled, How a Saxophonist Tricked the KGB by Encrypting Secrets in Music. (laughs) In 1985, saxophonist Meryl Goldberg found herself on a plane to Moscow with three fellow musicians from the Boston Klezmer Conservatory Band. She had carefully packed sheet music, reeds, and other woodwind supplies, along with a soprano sax, to bring into the USSR. But one of her spiral-bound notebooks, lined with stays for hand-notating music, contained hidden information. Using a code she had developed herself, Goldberg had obscured names, addresses, and other details the group would need for their trip in handwritten compositions that looked, to the untrained eye, like the real melodies she'd written on other pages of the book. Goldberg and her colleagues didn't want to give Soviet officials details of who they planned to see and what they planned to do on their trip. They were going to meet the Phantom Orchestra. The group was a dissident ensemble that Goldberg describes as an amalgamation of Jewish refuseniks, or Jews who were barred from emigrating out of the USSR, Christian activists, and Helsinki monitors, watchdogs who tracked Soviet compliance with the 1975 Helsinki Accords. The trip was a rare and special opportunity for American and Soviet players to meet in the USSR and make music together. It was also an opportunity for the American musicians to smuggle information about aid efforts and plans to the Phantom Orchestra, and for the ensemble to send updates out, including details about individuals looking to escape the Soviet Union. Goldberg and her colleagues, all of whom are Jewish, traveled to Moscow separately in two pairs to make it less likely that they would arouse suspicion as a group. They had received training on how to react to questioning and been told to expect surveillance, even run-ins with Soviet officials, throughout their trip. But first, Goldberg needed to get her notebook past border control. Goldberg says, When we arrived, we were immediately pulled aside, and they went through everything in our luggage to the point of unwrapping Tampax. It was crazy. (laughs) With my music, they opened it up, and there were some real tunes in there. If you're not a musician, you wouldn't know what's what. They went page by page through everything, and then they handed it back. Goldberg said that while the code worked and Soviet officials didn't confiscate their music, they did interrogate all four travelers about what they planned to do while in the USSR. Goldberg remembers, We were brought into a room with a big burly guy who banged on the table and yelled at us. Mm. And Goldberg is now a music education professor at California State University, San Marcos. Musical note names span the letters A to G, so they don't provide a full alphabet of options on their own. To create the code, Goldberg assigned letters of the alphabet to notes in the chromatic scale, a 12-tone scale that includes semitones, sharps and flats, to expand the possibilities. Hmm. In some examples, Goldberg only wrote in one musical range, known as treble clef. In others, she expanded the register to be able to encode more letters and added a bass clef to extend the range of the musical scale. For numbers, Goldberg would simply write them between the staves, where sometimes you might see chord symbols. She also added other characteristics of composition, like rhythms, key signatures, tempo markings, and articulation indicators, like slurs and ties. Most of these were there to make the music look more legitimate, but some doubled as coded supplements to the letters hidden in the music notes. She even occasionally drew tiny diagrams that could be mistaken for charts to remind herself of where a meeting place was located or how to deliver something. While somebody could have technically played the code as music, it would have sounded less like a tune and more like a cat walking across piano keys. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Goldberg says, I picked a note to start, and then I created the alphabet from there. Once you know it, it ends up being pretty easy to write things. I taught my friends on the trip the code, too. And we coded things while we were there so we would be able to take out some information about people and their efforts to emigrate, as well as details we hoped could help other people ask to leave. The U.S. musicians got their bearings in Moscow before heading to Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia. 
During eight days of travel, the musicians were tailed constantly by Soviet guards and agents and were repeatedly stopped for questioning. Goldberg says that members of the Phantom Orchestra, all of whom faced similar treatment in their daily lives, gave her and her colleagues advice and encouragement. When the Americans would express concerns that their presence was endangering the activists, Goldberg says the Phantom Orchestra members were resolute about the importance of spending time together. She adds, though, that some of the activists were later arrested and even beaten because of their interactions. Hmm. Goldberg says, On the second night, we were playing together and the KGB came in and everything got shut down. The electricity was turned off and it was a scary situation. And yet, when we're playing music, no one can take away that sense of freedom and empowerment. Playing together and communicating with people through music is like nothing else. Mm. After their time in Yerevan, the American musicians had planned to go to Riga, the capital of Latvia, and then to Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, in Russia. Finally, they were set to stop in Paris before returning to the United States. Instead, they were stopped and questioned again. The musicians were supposed to be placed under house arrest in Yerevan, but Goldberg says that Armenian officials bristled at the KGB intrusion and let them continue their trip. Eventually, though, the musicians were picked up and escorted back to Moscow where Soviet agents confiscated their passports. Goldberg says the group was driven around Moscow for several hours, perhaps as a scare tactic, before finally being allowed to stay together in a dormitory room guarded by young Soviet men with machine guns. She says, At that point, you're thinking they're going to take us to Siberia or something. We were super freaked out, so we kept playing music for each other that night. And we played a beloved Russian folk tune, but out of tune to annoy the young soldier outside of the door. (laughs) It gave us a sense of humor and empowerment. Finally, officials said the group would be deported to Sweden. While officials searched their possessions again before letting them on the plane, no one ever flagged the sheet music. Goldberg says that while she later learned that some of the Soviet activists faced consequences for the visit, some of the people the musicians met on the trip were eventually able to permanently leave the USSR. She notes that while her musical code wouldn't have been very difficult to crack if someone were focused on it, the obfuscation served its purpose, making it both an elegant and harmonious encryption scheme. Hmm. I think if there's one thing stories like this remind me of, it's that I am a coward. I would 100% not do anything like this. I I am so in awe of people who do stuff like this, who go into a dangerous situation with yeah. uh, with contraband that could get them caught and murdered. Mm-hmm. And I just, oh, amazing. Yeah. Anytime people use their superpower for good, my faith and hope is restored. Yeah. But also there's a part of me that's like, why? Why would you do that? That's so stupid. Like, <laughs> you're going to get killed <laughs> and you're going to get your compatriots killed. And I mean, I guess that's the risk that the compatriots have already taken upon themselves. But mm-hmm. just, when you're in yeah. a situation, though, where your options are worse sure. and bad. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's like you're going to get killed we never anyway. Have to test so, that. Yeah. yeah. But that is really cool that she managed to find a way to hide that information. I feel like Anyone with even a small amount of musical training would be able to see those notes are Mm -hmm. all over the place. They're not melodic in the slightest. Unless you're like a really like you're John Cage, you know, if you're going to do some like cutting edge dissonant. It's not meant to sound good. It's like neo jazz. Yeah, that's right. This is for my 1980s jazz noise band. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's very (laughs) avant-garde. Next link. Next Next link. All right, this next article is from The Hustle, and it's called The Lucrative Economics of Expert Witnesses. Oh. And the tie-in here is that apparently, and I did not know this because I'm proud to say I did not follow it, but apparently during the recent Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, 
One of the expert witnesses called to the stand was a psychologist named Shannon Curry, and on cross-examination, she was asked, you're being paid to be here today, correct? And she said yes, and they were obviously trying to make a point, so they asked, is it over 100,000, 200,000, 300,000? And some people on the internet kind of lost their minds at the implication that an expert witness would be paid such a huge amount to appear in court for a few hours. Mm -hmm. But... According to this article, for a high-profile case, that's actually not an unusual amount of money to pay for expert testimony. Sure. Studies show that expert witnesses are highly persuasive with juries, and their frequency in the courtroom has been steadily increasing for the past 50 years, to the point that nowadays around 8 out of 10 cases use at least one expert witness. But before we dive into this, we need to understand what makes an expert witness. In general, there are three types of witnesses— A lay witness is someone who was actually involved in the scene of the crime, meaning they saw something firsthand that they can testify to. A character witness is someone who personally knows either the victim or the defendant and can testify to their personality traits. And crucially, these two types of witnesses legally cannot be paid by either the defense or the prosecution in most states. Hmm. Some states do have a sort of a mandatory basic wage for non-expert witnesses that is paid by the state, but it's not much. It's kind of like how you technically get paid for jury duty. Mm. The highest amount is in New Mexico, where witnesses are paid $95 per day, and the lowest are Kentucky, Virginia, Maryland, and Connecticut, where they pay you nothing. (laughs) And in case y'all are curious, because I know you are, Texas is on the low end, between $10 to $20 per day. Shocker. Wow. I know. It's like, at that rate, it's not even worth seeing a crime, right? (laughs) No state, however, has a cap on how much you can pay an expert witness, which I admit, if I think about it, I can kind of see the logic of, right? Because Mm -hmm. if you've actually witnessed a crime, they can subpoena you, right? They don't have to pay you because they can make you be there. But... (laughs) There's no way to force an expert to testify. And if they put a cap on the dollar amount you can spend, then that basically is the state preventing you from presenting your best Mm -hmm. possible defense. So there's really no choice but to let it be a free for all. And it is a free for all. (laughs) The Depp Heard trial, for example, featured dozens of expert witnesses totaling over a million dollars in fees. But non-celebrity cases can rack up huge numbers as well. In 2017, a murder trial in a small town in Idaho spent $600,000 on expert testimony, of which $210,000 was paid to a single psychologist. In the most extreme case noted in the article, a forensic architect who investigates the causes and origins of major construction failures reported getting paid $2.4 million for a single court case. What? Now, to be fair... There were a lot of hours of work involved in that case because the expert was asked to examine significant amounts of data and draw conclusions and create an entire report about what happened. Mm. But there is also a lot of disparity between different types of experts. The average expert witness charges around $500 an hour and takes home $13,000 for 25 hours of work on a single case. The highest paid expert witnesses are medical professionals who are typically called to testify in cases of medical negligence. Mm -hmm. And of those, hand surgeons are the highest paid of all, probably because they're sort of the rarest kind of doctor, I imagine. Mm. They average around $1,400 per hour. The lowest paid, according to this article, are horse experts who might be called upon to give an appraisal of a horse's worth during an estate dispute, and they make around $225 an hour. And then there's the case of Keith Diaz, 
who is an assistant professor of behavioral medicine at Columbia University. He got a call one day out of the blue from a Connecticut prosecutor who was working on a murder case where the victim happened to be wearing a Fitbit at the time of the murder. And the proposal was pretty simple. The prosecutor said, look, the data we got from this thing is relevant to the case, but it's a new piece of technology and the defense is going to try to tear us apart on that Mm. unless we bring in a, quote, Fitbit expert to... Explain to the jury what one is and how it works and to mm-hmm. officially assert that it's an accurate measure of things like heart rate. So for $350 an hour, Diaz said, OK, I guess I can do that. <laughs> and the thing is, he did a great job on the stand. The prosecution won. And now Diaz is the Fitbit expert. Mm -hmm. He's done a bunch of other cases since then. And basically every time a Fitbit gets entered as evidence in a court case, they say, well, we want the guy with the track record. So they call him up. Yep. And that whole anecdote hints at a really key feature about expert witnesses, which is that actual expertise is not the most important skill for them to have. Mm -hmm. One ex-attorney named James Mangraviti says an expert has to walk into a courtroom and get cross-examined by an aggressive person who's getting paid a lot of money to make you look like a fool. (laughs) Scientific rigor is necessary, but confidence, attractiveness and poise are even more so because studies have shown that witnesses who are self-assured, make eye contact and speak calmly are perceived by jurors to be more knowledgeable and trustworthy whether or not they actually are. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) It's like lobbying for lawyer subsidiary. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And obviously, this brings up some ethical concerns, as does the entire concept of paying these experts five and even six-figure sums to basically tell you what you want to hear. And Diaz does say he often feels pressured into forming definitive opinions that stretch beyond the basic science that he's there to report on. He says, quote, they give you all these reasons why the defendant is a lowlife and a terrible person. (laughs) If a heart rate is elevated at a certain time, a prosecutor wants me to say it's because she was dying. I can explain how the device works, but I can't tell you what exactly that means. One 1994 study found that 77 percent of expert witnesses felt that lawyers manipulated them in order to weaken unfavorable testimony and strengthen favorable testimony. And two separate surveys of judges conducted by the Federal Judicial Center concluded, quote, experts abandon objectivity and become advocates for the side that hires them. And by the way, those two stats come from a book whose title makes the author's position absolutely clear. It's called Whores of the Court, the Fraud <laughs> of Psychiatric Testimony and the Rape of American Justice. Oh, so, you know, wow. it's a contentious subject. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At any rate, if you'd like to cash in on some of that sweet, sweet expert witness money, there is actually a directory called Seek, S-E-A-K, where you can register your own hyper-niche field in the hopes that someone someday might need to call on you in a particularly bizarre murder case. Some of the experts already available on Seek include street sweepers, cryptocurrency scholars, and ski accident reconstructionists. Wow. And I feel like if they ever want a podcast expert, they're going to go with a true crime podcast expert, so we may (laughs) be out. But, you know, there's other things we're experts on, I feel like. 
that whole website just sounds like a casting call, right? It like, is. Hey, it absolutely is. I mean, they obviously check your qualifications and that's going to be uncovered during some kind of discovery or auditioning process or whatever. But literally anybody who has those technical qualifications can just give it a shot. Why not? Right. But again, like you said, it is an audition because it's not about the technical qualifications. No. It's about, are you attractive? Can you yeah. speak clearly? Can you mm-hmm. speak persuasively? So maybe- Justice every- system for sale. Because that's sorry. the thing people do out in Hollywood on the back of your headshot. You have to put all your skills. Yeah. And so people list, they're like, yeah, water skiing, horseback riding. They put everything that they think they might be able to do if they took a little training. Because mm-hmm. if they ever get asked to do it, they're like, well, I'll quick, I'll take a course and learn it real fast. Yep. Yep. So, you know- the thing is probably filled with nothing but actors to begin with. Yeah, so. that's that is faith in my justice system. Oh, there you go. Oh. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right, we're gonna surf this bummer wave for a little bit longer. <laughs> Gizmodo has a quick little ditty on how the U.S. drought situation is getting increasingly desperate. So, Oh, good. Yeah. I mean, it's no real news here in Texas where we are already looking to have a record-breaking summer. We've been in triple digits for a while now and have a lot more of them to go. But let's talk about other places around the country because all over the U.S. there is not enough water to grow crops. Our hydropower is starting to falter. Our farmland is too parched to produce, and millions of people are currently under water restrictions. So California is really considered the U.S.'s produce aisle, right? The state grows over a third of the country's domestically harvested vegetables and Mm. two-thirds of our fruit and nuts. But feeding the nation requires a lot of water, and agriculture eats up about four times as much water as urban water usage. And because of these water shortages, hundreds of thousands of acres are sitting stagnant without any crops growing on them at all. An estimated 400,000 acres of cropland were idled because of lack of water last year, and things have continued to get worse. So one farmer told the BBC that he was foregoing tomato planting this year because there just wasn't enough water for irrigation. In a CNN report, another farmer told the outlet he wasn't growing crops on about half of his land, quote, I got the land, I got the people. I have everything but no water. Hmm. But it's not just farm workers and food production suffering. It's the stability of the land itself. In recent years, the Federal Bureau of Reclamation has restricted how much water from rivers and reservoirs can go to farming. And just a few months ago, the Bureau announced it would not be allocating any water for irrigation in parts of the ag-heavy Central Valley. So instead of, you know, having surface water being directed their way, Farmers have been leaning heavily on pumping groundwater from wells drilled ever deeper underground. But overpumping means parts of the valley are starting to collapse inward in a process known as subsidence. Thanks to drought, the very earth under Californians' feet is falling away. Both local and state agencies in California have started asking people to limit their water use. Outdoor watering has been banned entirely or heavily moderated in many regions. And if you fail to comply with these new water restrictions, you're going to get some real consequences. Obviously, financial penalties, which are just a fancy way of saying legal for a price, but they'll choke your taps. In the Las Virgenes Municipal Water District, which includes some of the wealthiest areas of Los Angeles County, over Mm -hmm. 600 households are on notice after three strikes, according to reporting by the New York Times. And of those households, 20 of the worst offenders were threatened with the installation of flow restrictions on their property's taps. 
Four of the 20 households refused to sign a commitment to the restriction. So Water District went ahead with the flow restrictors. What they do is they take taps down to a trickle, which makes outdoor watering effectively impossible. And they keep these in place for at least two weeks. If people try to remove them once they've been installed, they'll be charged another $2,500, which to the fine, rich people of Calabasas, I'm sure is a, pardon the pun, proverbial drop in the bucket. (laughs) From the New York Times, quote, This is not our preferred way of interacting with our customers, the head of the Las Virginias Municipal Water District said. We are in a situation where we can't have customers wasting water. No, duh. But if California's situation sounds weird, consider that Colorado has been trying to combat drought by actively changing the weather since the 1970s. Colorado has a $1 million weather modification program, which primarily focuses on cloud seeding to boost snowfall. And cloud seeding, if case you don't know, is a process where silver iodide particles are released into the atmosphere in a targeted way to promote the generation of ice particles, which then turn into falling snow. And multiple Western states fund this Colorado program because snowpack in the Rocky Mountains is so integral to the region's rivers. But the exact benefit of the technology is unsettled. There are some big limitations. For example, cloud seeding can only boost existing storms. It can't generate entirely new ones. And it does require pretty specific wind, humidity, and cloud conditions to work. In 2020, cloud seeding contributed an annual estimated 326,000 gallons of water to Colorado's snowfall. But this added precipitation barely scratches the surface of what's needed. And decades of cloud seeding haven't really given the results we were promised. So experts are ringing the alarm that it can't stand alone as the only solution. Cloud seeding or not, if we don't tackle climate change head on, Colorado will soon be headed toward a future with half as much snow, according to a recent study. Mm. Outside of the West, U.S. states are also facing growing drought. We've got three quarters of Massachusetts being drier than normal. We have even got water shortages in Hawaii, which sounds insane, but they've had a lack of rainfall. And it's not just the U.S., right? Across the border in Mexico, dry conditions are leading to water restrictions as well. The state of Nueva Leon has limited residents' water access to a six-hour daily window of time, which is a way more stringent limitation than what some of us are dealing with, right? Mm -hmm. So it's happening all over the place. We've heard about Iraq and Spain that have been reckoning with lack of precipitation, drought, and water restrictions. but Hey, every bit of additional warming adds to the increasing risk of worsening drought. Pay attention. Well, if it gets rid of the tradition of having a lawn where I don't have to have a lawn anymore, oh, I could just oh. have gravel and be done with it. I wouldn't I wouldn't mind that. That would be all Seriously, right. plant native plants. They're best equipped to withstand even some of the changes that we're going through. My sunflowers are kicking right now. I mean, you know, it's a small silver lining, but if climate change gets rid of HOAs, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> whatever it takes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. We'll balance it out with a little good news. Yay! Uh, this article comes to us from ScienceAlert.com. It's titled, Scientists Found Superworms That Love Eating Styrofoam, <gasps> and It Could oh. Be a Good Thing. Yay! Yes! Worms. Sounds like it could be. Yeah. <laughs> Scientists at Australia's University of Queensland have now discovered that superworms, the larvae of Zophobus morio darkling beetles, are eager <laughs> to dine on the substance, and their gut enzymes could hold the key to higher recycling rates. Yay. 
Chris Rink, who led a study that was published in the journal Microbial Genomics on Thursday, told AFP previous reports had shown that tiny waxworms and mealworms, which are also beetle larvae, had a good track record when it came to eating plastic. So we hypothesized that the much larger superworms can eat even more. Superworms grow up to 2 inches or 5 centimeters and are bred as a food source for reptiles and birds or even for humans in countries such as Thailand and Mexico. Whoa. Rink and his team fed superworms different diets over a three-week period with some given polystyrene foam, commonly known as styrofoam, some bran, and others not fed at all. He said, We confirmed that superworms can survive on a sole polystyrene diet and even gain a small amount of weight, compared to a starvation control group, which suggests that the worms can gain energy from eating polystyrene. Hmm. Although the polystyrene-reared superworms completed their life cycle, becoming pupae and then fully developed adult beetles, tests revealed a loss of microbial diversity in their guts and potential pathogens. These findings suggested that while the bugs can survive on polystyrene, it is not a nutritious diet and impacts their health. Next, the team used a technique called metagenomics to analyze the microbial gut community and find which gene-encoded enzymes were involved in degrading the plastic. Rinka said, this could be a way to improve the health of the worms and to deal with the large amount of food waste in Western countries. But while breeding more worms for this purpose is possible, he envisions another route, creating recycling plants that mimic what the larvae do, which is to first shred the plastic in their mouths, then digest it through bacterial enzymes. (laughs) Ultimately, we want to take the superworms out of the equation, he said, and he now plans more research aimed at finding the most efficient enzymes, then enhancing them further through enzyme engineering. The breakdown products from that reaction could then be fed to other microbes to create high-value compounds such as bioplastics in what he hopes would become an economically viable upcycling approach. Hmm. Yeah, and in this article, there is a video which you can watch if you want to no, see thanks. some superworms nope. <laughs> munch on styrofoam. Uh, I don't know, that sounds kind of cute. Yeah, it actually <laughs> is kind of cute because they get covered in these fuzzy little styrofoam bits as they're just you know, crunching through the styrofoam piece. So, you know, if you're into that, it's available. <laughs> oh, I look forward to our impending future of super plastic enhanced mutated worms. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It isn't really the worms. It's the bacteria in their guts. Okay. So I like- look forward to the super plastic uh, <laughs> bacteria. That'll be good. <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. All right. This next article is from The Conversation, and it's called What Makes Smoky Charred Barbecue Taste So Good? Is it the smoke and the char? Yeah. The short answer is everything that's bad for us. (laughs) But the long answer is really interesting because this article is written by Christine Nolan, an associate professor of chemistry at the University of Richmond, who specifically focuses on compounds found in nature. So it's a real sciencey look at barbecue. Mm. And she says, first, it's important to define barbecue because the term can mean different things to different cultures and locations. And at its most basic... Barbecue is the cooking of food over an open flame. And what sets barbecue apart from other cooking methods is that the heat reaches the food in two ways at the same time. First, the hot metal grill is heating the food directly through conduction. And second, the flames below are also cooking the food through radiation. Hmm. And the next important thing that happens when you barbecue chemically is that the high heat allows the water near the surface of the food to boil off. And once the surface is dry, the proteins and sugars undergo something called the Maillard reaction. Mm. And this is like the basis of all food chemistry. It was first described by the French chemist Louis-Camille Maillard, 
But the mechanism behind it wasn't really understood until 1953 by an African-American chemist named John E. Hodge. And Hodge's contributions were so massive that there's actually been some discussion of renaming it the Maillard-Hodge reaction, but that idea hasn't fully caught on yet. At any rate, according to Hodge's model, the Maillard reaction has three stages. First, the carbonyl group of a sugar reacts with an amino group on a protein or amino acid to produce water and an unstable glycosyl amine. Then the glycosyl amine undergoes Amadori rearrangements to produce a series of aminoketose compounds. Last, a multitude of molecules, including some that impart flavor, aroma, and color, are created when the aminoketose compounds undergo a host of further rearrangements, conversions, additions, and polymerizations. Hmm. So there's not really a lot of definition there. Basically, what you get out of it very much depends on what you put into it. And over the past several decades, there's been a huge effort by food scientists to figure out how to influence the end products. So they know, for example, that glycine reactions produce beer-like odors, Hmm. Valine reactions produce characteristic rye bread smells, hmm. and cysteine is the amino acid responsible for many meat scents. Huh. And speaking of meat, back to barbecue, another chemical hallmark of barbecuing is those lovely char marks. These are mostly made up of carbon deposits, which are the byproduct of combustion, and they can be tasty in small amounts. Unfortunately, some of the other byproducts of charred meat, namely heterocyclic amines and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, are known carcinogens. And while the dangers are far lower than, say, smoking cigarettes, studies have shown that consuming more charred meat in your diet does lead to a measurably higher risk of cancer. Nah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> And finally, the last key characteristic of barbecue is smokiness, which occurs when molecules in the food bind to certain molecules in the smoke. And importantly, there are a mix of different chemicals in smoke, and they bind in different ways depending on their molecular shape. Polar molecules and nonpolar molecules like to bind to their matching shapes, and because water is a polar molecule and fat is a nonpolar molecule, that means that a food containing both water and fat, which meat happens to be, will be able to absorb a wider range of smoky molecules and thus retain more complex flavors when it is smoked. What this means is that if you tried to smoke, for example, a bunch of cucumber slices, which are 98% water, or an avocado, which is mostly fat, they would each absorb some smoky flavor, but neither of them would have that same combined smoky profile that the meat would have, even if they were roasted over the exact same fire. Hmm. So one tip that Nolan offers here is that if you are trying to barbecue something very fatty, but you want that more complex smoky flavor, you should periodically spritz it with a little water while it's cooking. Oh. Which seems dangerous to me to be spritzing water <laughs> over your open fire. But I guess it's better than spritzing fat over right. your very watery food over yeah. an open fire. Don't so. do that with oil, for sure. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I noticed they just sort of glossed right over that part of the article. <laughs> but, you know, Fourth of July is coming up. Hopefully oh. some of this will be useful to some of you. I can tell you right now, you will not catch me standing over an open flame in 110 degree heat. But if someone else wants to cook me some barbecue, I will gladly sit mm -hmm. in the air conditioning and eat it. 
I'm sure TikTok will be flooded with people's submissions for all kinds of variations on the execution of barbecue. Yes. And and very angry, like, you're doing this wrong, millennials, or whatever, like, the latest outrage machine Oh, is. grill shaming. Get ready, y'all. It's going to be a hot summer. <laughs> Hashtag. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Wired's got a pretty cool article about a new kind of genome editing that can fine tune DNA. So we all know about CRISPR. We talk about CRISPR a lot, Mm -hmm. right? And CRISPR has already shown a lot of promise as a treatment for existing conditions like sickle cell disease, a rare form of blindness, and a devastating disease known as transthyretin amyloidosis. Oh, I probably Mm. butchered that. But in each of these cases, Scientists are using CRISPR to snip out problematic DNA in order to treat disease. But there are some instances where it might be better to leave a gene intact and fine-tune it instead. This is what scientists are calling epigenetic editing. Hmm. So epigenetics is the study of the chemical changes that happen to DNA throughout a lifetime, which in turn affect the expression of genes. And these changes can occur as a result of a person's behavior like diet or smoking, environmental exposures to pollution toxins or ultraviolet rays. And while gene editing relies on changing the DNA code itself, epigenetic editing involves dialing the expression of individual genes up or down. And this is because genes contain instructions to make vital proteins and their expression is the process by which a gene gets switched on to make them. So if you think of your genes as like volume knobs on a soundboard, epigenetic editing controls how loud or soft their settings are, whereas CRISPR is just going to like disable certain channels, right? Mm. So experimenting with those volume controls is a new field, but a study published in May in the journal Science Advances offers an intriguing peek at one possible application countering the way early alcohol use modifies how genes work. So in previous Hmm. research, scientists had found that binge drinking during adolescence alters brain chemistry in the amygdala, the small almond-shaped part of the brain that controls fear and pleasure responses. In both rodents and people, they found that exposure to alcohol early in life seems to decrease the expression of a gene called ARC. And this gene is a major regulator of plasticity or the brain's ability to adapt based on experience. So when you have the ARC expression turned down, the changes associated with the predisposition to anxiety and alcohol use disorder in adulthood. So for this new study, a team led by Subhash Pandey, a psychiatry professor and director of the Center for Alcohol Research and Epigenetics at the University of Illinois, Chicago, They wanted to see if they could reverse this change in rats by epigenetically editing ARC in their amygdalas. They built a modified form of CRISPR that instead of editing or deleting the gene, turns up its expression. Then they injected it into the brains of adult rats that had been exposed to alcohol during their adolescence, the equivalent age of like 10 to 18 for a human. And that early Mm. exposure meant that ARC's expression was already depressed in the adult animals. The CRISPR injection brought ARC expression back up to baseline levels, what Pandy refers to as a, quote, factory reset for the brain. And afterwards, these rodents consumed less alcohol and were less anxious, something the researchers measured through behavioral testing. So Hmm. the study raises the possibility that our molecular memory could be revised or even erased. 
And as someone who has kind of really gone down the rabbit hole of epigenetic theory, specifically with trauma and how mm. traumatic experiences can affect gene expression, like throughout the duration of someone's lifetime, this could be huge, right? But the testing that we have to do to really validate this is going to be a lot more thorough, right? Because there could be unintended consequences of tweaking a gene's expression, right? Sure. ARC is a regulator gene involved in brain plasticity, which is a pretty broad application. Mm. There could be way more effects that brain plasticity has to play, right? What other behaviors could be altered by this change? But, mm -hmm. you know, overall, this is a really fascinating idea, but we definitely need to see more of the results being read replicated, and the CRISPR treatment tried in larger animals that more closely mimic humans. Yeah. We need to find, like, alcoholic goats and then alcoholic <laughs> oh, cows. Like, oh, we need to move our way up. Oh, like... oh, babies. I mean, but the one big takeaway that I thought was kind of buried here, uh, watch that binge drinking from ages 10 to 18, y'all. Yeah, because yeah. clearly that's having some effect. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it can be permanent. So, you know, just find that tipsy edge if you gotta. But also oh, don't no, drink no, no, below no, no. 21. Yeah, you, <laughs> you just cut that out. I'm, I'm not saying that to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include When Potatoes Were Illegal, The Surreal Case of a CIA Hacker's Revenge, and On This Day in 2004, The Killdozer Emerged. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.